Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Roz Taylor. In the Danish movie, Another Round, which is currently on Netflix, Mads Mikkelsen and a few other middle-aged men decide to spend their waking hours permanently drunk to see if life gets more exciting. I won't give away the ending, but the plan doesn't really work out. Britain is a country steeped in alcohol. The pint, the Scots whiskey, the Alcopops. But our relationship with it is changing. More of us are teetotal. Some of us, on the other hand, are drinking a lot more. Joining me to talk about how boozing is changing is Professor John Holmes of the University of Sheffield. He's director of the Sheffield Alcohol Research Group. Welcome to the bunker, John. Hi. According to one NHS stat, about 38% of 16 to 24-year-olds said they hadn't had a drink in the past year in 2021. That was twice as many as a decade before. What's going on here? So this is actually a big international trend. We're seeing young people are drinking less in most high-income countries. So they're either not drinking at all, or those who do drink are drinking less often and in smaller amounts. And in some cases, are also binge drinking or getting drunk less often. And the reasons for this are pretty complex. Um, One key thing to say, though, is that We've spent several years researching this in the UK and also working with teams in other countries, in Australia, in Sweden, Finland. And what we're finding is that there's no single reason for this. It's not the internet in a a very specific sense. And it's not that they're switching to taking drugs. There's a lot of different things going on that are creating this decline. So it isn't, for example, the COVID lockdowns? No, it's, it's... um, the COVID lockdowns have, have quite a complex story to them. But the first thing to say is that this decline in youth drinking long predates COVID. It, it goes right back to the, the peak drinking for young people was in around 2004. And we really saw quite big declines from kind of 2004 for the next 10 years to around the mid-2010s. And actually, things have been pretty stable in young people from, from then onwards. What happened more in the COVID period was that across the general population, we saw a bit of a polarisation with with some people drinking less, around a quarter of the population drinking less, but around a quarter of the population also drinking more. And, and what's been particularly problematic is that quarter who are drinking more tend to be the people who are heavier drinkers to start with and tend to be people who have additional risk factors as well, such as mental health problems. So the percentage of over 75s who didn't drink Uh, during that period I was talking about, actually went down. What do we know about where and and what older Britons are drinking? Yeah, so the flip side of this this decline in youth drinking is uh, an increase in alcohol consumption in middle age and in older age. This is really what we'd call a cohort effect. It's not that the whole population is shifting around. It's that we've seen generations coming through and moving through the life course with different drinking behaviours. 
So we've got a light drinking generation at one end of the age spectrum, but at the other end of the age spectrum, we've got the, the, the birth cohorts from the 50s and the 60s who are now in older age and have drunk more right throughout their life course than their predecessors. And now they're drinking more in, in older age as well. But we know pubs are closing, even as coffee shops, for example, are booming and opening all the time. If you socialise a lot online, do you simply perhaps not feel the need to drink as much? You mentioned earlier this isn't about the internet, but is there not a factor there going on perhaps? The role of the internet in alcohol consumption is pretty complicated. And there's, lo- there's both parts of the internet that might support more drinking, such as lots of online advertising, and people worry a lot about the degree of, of uh, online advertising of alcohol that young people are being subjected to, but also things that kind of might promote less drinking. As you say, simply spending more time at home online means you, you can't be out in the pub at the same time. When we actually look at the overall effect of this, what we see is that young people who use the internet are actually more likely to drink, not less likely, and more internet use is associated with more drinking. So it doesn't seem that there's any kind of simple time substitution effect here. What's more likely is if the internet is having a role, it's more likely around how it's reshaping young people's general perceptions of their lives and what what they value in their lives. And in in quite complicated ways, that's leading to young people saying, actually, I want to focus on my education or I want to focus on my, my health and well-being and I don't want to spend as much time drinking alcohol. Do you think there's perhaps an issue of control over your image? I mean, not wanting to be photographed or recorded while you're drunk, of course, which wouldn't have happened 20 years ago so much, but could happen now. Yeah, I mean, this is this is definitely a big concern for young people. There's a lot of research out there that describes how young people are worried about being photographed or, or picked up on videos, um, very drunk or doing things that are embarrassing or various other problems that they might get from sharing of online content. But it's quite nuanced as well, because we know that one of the things that attracts young people to very heavy drinking is, yes, the drinking itself, but also the kind of building of war stories and and memories with their friendship groups. And this helps those groups bond. And the sharing of images and videos is part of that process. So it's not simply that young people want to avoid it. They, they want to avoid it in certain ways, but actually in some ways, they might also want to, to engage in it. And that's partly to do with which social media we're talking about. So something like Snapchat, where, you, where the message disappears and is, is temporary or, or only accessible to a small number of people, they may be more comfortable with that. Whereas um, something like Instagram, where it's a bit more public, they may be less comfortable. So it's quite a nuanced story. Do women have a different relationship as well with social media and alcohol, given that we know that women naturally can be more vulnerable when they're drunk? Yeah, I think there's there's definitely specific issues around gender here. Obviously, the, the nighttime economy can be quite an oppressive place for women. Um, there are sometimes expectations or at least um, social pressures of, of different kinds around the kind of clothing they wear. It's a very sexualized environment and if we're looking for evidence of toxic masculinity, the nighttime economy is definitely one place you'd go looking for it. So this is one of the reasons that young people now are much more likely to drink at home before they go for a night out. This is partly because it's cheaper, and and obviously we know young people are, are concerned about money, but it also allows them to delay entering the nighttime economy, to have fun in a more relaxed space with just their friends beforehand. And also in some of the work that's been done, young women talk about 
needing to get a little bit drunk before they go out to be able to almost brave the nighttime economy. Yeah, I can certainly empathise with that. Is there any evidence that younger people are using other drugs more instead? Now, you said that, you know, that there wasn't much in terms of illegal drugs, but I'm also thinking about things like vaping. Yeah, I mean, at a basic level, there's there's very little evidence that young people substituted drugs for alcohol when, when drinking went down. In fact, almost the opposite, drug use declined as alcohol use did, and that includes smoking and also includes less harmful drugs like cannabis, we have less evidence on, on kind of class A drugs, um, simply because so few young people take them in the first place. It's very difficult to track trends in them. We have seen some evidence that cannabis use was increasing again leading up to the pandemic, but that doesn't seem to be related to, to changes in alcohol use. It seems to be more related to changes in the, in the illicit cannabis markets. Coming to things like vaping, of course, we, we know that vaping has increased a huge amount. But it still actually remains relatively low prevalence, so relatively few young people are vaping. And those that are doing it are largely doing it experimentally. They're not, they're not vaping routinely. That's particularly true among never smokers. There's, there's very few young people who don't smoke cigarettes who are taking up vaping as a long-term habit. So I think the, the big picture here is that really there are trends in drug use, but they're not really connected to the trends in alcohol use at all. Has the kind of alcohol we drink changed? in recent decades? And is that something that you can map onto different generations? Possibly less so onto generations. But what we can say is, if you look, um, there's a a lovely graph that sometimes gets showed, which shows our drinking behaviour over the last 100 years, going right back to the turn of the 20th century. You see a real increase in our drinking, going from kind of a historic low after the, the, the First and Second World Wars, reaching right up to a historic high in, in the early 2000s. And as part of that, what we see is a decline in the, the share of our alcohol consumption that's beer and a big increase in the share of our consumption that's wine. So that's been the biggest change, that shift from beer consumption to wine consumption. And that partly is about age. It's partly about as people stop drinking as much in pubs as they get older and they drink more in the home, they tend to drink more wine. And that, that kind of makes sense because the, the setting and the ambience and the availability and, and price of wine in supermarkets all means that wine's quite a, an available and easy thing to drink at home. So it, it reflects changing drinking patterns. It reflects the increase in drinking in middle and older age. Um, and it also just reflects the growth of, of the wine industry as, um, across Europe, but particularly in the UK. think about the impact on the NHS. I mean, older people are less likely to binge drink and turn up to A&E and need their stomachs pumped. But what are they risking in carrying on drinking heavily into old age? Alcohol affects nearly every system in the body, but the, the biggest things it has an impact on are the liver, so liver disease, liver cirrhosis, um, the circulatory system, particularly heart disease, and then cancers. And people are, are much less aware that alcohol is a cause of cancer even at relatively low levels of consumption. And it's not just rare cancers that it affects. It it affects bowel cancer and breast cancer. Um, And obviously, those are two of the most common types of cancer. There's also increasing evidence that alcohol plays a role in the development of dementia as well. Uh, And and as that evidence grows, it's likely, likely to become a much bigger part of the story of why we care about alcohol consumption as a, as a health problem. 
we tend to think of old people as the health problems they suffer being diseases. But injuries are also important too. Injuries are a much bigger part of a of a health problem for younger people because young people don't tend to get cancer or heart disease. But actually, the, the number of injuries that people get is actually not hugely dissimilar across age groups. So older people also suffer a significant number of injuries that are attributable to alcohol, whether that's through falling down the stairs at home, but also from violence. And again, we think about violence in the nighttime economy, but also a huge amount of the violence that happens in society happens inside the home, and alcohol is playing a big part in that. The other thing that I think is quite important here is, yes, older people are definitely suffering harm from alcohol, but the, the age group that suffers the most harm is those in their late 50s. Alcohol actually kills people at quite young ages, uh, as well as at, uh, in the older age groups. Do you think that alcohol might one day acquire the same kind of stigma as smoking, given the way that we see younger people drinking a lot less? And if, as you say, there is a stronger link between dementia and alcohol. Is there a chance that, that we could see a shift there? I think it's possible, but I think it's quite complicated. So one of the reasons why this might not quite happen in that way is that alcohol is still much less risky, at least for individuals, than, than smoking. Approximately half of people who um, smoke will die as a result of their smoking. That's not true with alcohol use. Even people who are drinking quite large amounts, only around one in four of them will die from their drinking. And if you're drinking within the the low-risk guidelines that we set, so 14 units a week, you've only got around a one in a hundred chance of dying from alcohol. So at that basic individual level, there's not a good reason why we should treat alcohol as as problematic as smoking. It's also much less addictive for most people as well. That said, alcohol causes a lot of harm for the for the wider population beyond the drinkers. I've mentioned already that it, it plays a big role in domestic violence. The cost of the NHS is huge. The impact on the criminal justice system is big. So we have lots of these types of concerns. Whether those concerns will ever raise alcohol up to the level where we start regulating it like we do tobacco, I think I think is more up for debate. I, I'm personally not convinced that the, the two cases are quite sufficiently similar to regulate alcohol that way. So we don't regulate it that way, but we do, of course, tax it uh, with quite heavy duties. And it's always extraordinary to me how much fiddling around with the duty rate on a bottle of whiskey seems to become a headline budget measure when it really, really isn't. Uh, But is it, do you feel that it should be taxed more highly or is it expensive enough at the moment that it already acts as a deterrent? Well, we, we know that increasing the price of alcohol is one of the most effective and, and one of the most cost-effective ways as well of reducing the harm it causes. You're right that the UK has relatively high alcohol taxes, certainly compared to the rest of Europe. Um, we're basically up there near the top with, with Finland and with Ireland and, and one or two other countries. That said, we've allowed our alcohol taxes to decline quite a lot over time simply by not keep making sure they keep pace with inflation. So although we do worry a lot about um, tax on alcohol and the price of a pint rising, actually, in real terms, alcohol prices have tended to go down quite a lot over the last 20 years. And that's been a specific policy choice of governments. For the reasons you mentioned, it's quite politically convenient when you're increasing taxes elsewhere and cutting spending on services to pull a rabbit out of your hat and say, um, hey, we're going to cut the price of a pint of beer. 
The other thing that the government's been doing, though, which perhaps hasn't been noticed as much, is while it's been freezing duty on beer, it's still been raising duty on wine. So around 40% of the alcohol duty revenue used to come from beer. That's now less than 30%. And wine used to be less than 28%. Now it makes up 38% of duty revenue. So what we're basically seeing is the government is getting a political bonus from taxing beer less, but getting a, a revenue bonus by allowing wine taxes to keep going up. Feels a bit of a penalty on almost, without wanting to be stereotypical, you know, the middle classes tend to drink wine. <laughs> feels feels a bit unfair, that. Yeah, it, it depends how you want to look at it. I mean, another way to look at it is wine is a more harmful product because it's got more um, more alcohol in it. You could also say it's it's a more progressive way to tax alcohol because um, wealthier people t- tend to drink more wine, poorer people tend to drink more beer. But yeah, th- there's lots of arguments about the best ways to tax alcohol. Another p- thing that plays into this is the impact of alcohol duty on pubs. So we buy about 70% of our alcohol now in shops and supermarkets. We tend to think of ourselves as a pub drinking country. That, that's not really the case anymore. But mo- a bigger chunk of beer is sold in pubs, whereas relatively little wine is. So you can tax wine without penalising pubs as much. That's interesting. I wanted to ask you about Alcarel, uh, which is a synthetic alcohol, which the alcohol expert Professor David Nutt has come up with. And it claims to make you feel as though you've had two drinks, but without any ill effects, any hangover and so on, and effects on the organs and so on. My colleague Ian Dunt tried it recently, and he was moderately impressed. He drinks quite a lot. Could this be a breakthrough, do you think, in terms of allowing people to enjoy the benefits of alcohol without the downsides? Yeah, I think this is one of those those questions that we're really not sure what the answer is at this moment. Um, David Nutt's been working on on this idea for quite some time. He, he's one of the real characters of alcohol and drug research. People people will know him from being sacked as a uh, as a government advisor on drugs for for making various comments that weren't um, interpreted well by the Labour government about cannabis, as I recall. Uh, yes, about cannabis. About I think he also said that taking ecstasy was safer than horse riding. Uh, and produced some data to, to back his arguments up, but he, I think he was making a broader point that we we have quite an irrational approach to how we how we regulate drugs in Britain and and in much of the world. Um, but coming back to Alcarel, I mean we we do need to know more about this product, and we also need to be realistic about what its potential is. So um, the people behind it have put out very little data on it on its effects yet, uh, and that's true for. It's not the only product like this. There are other products, and and similarly, we know little about them. We know that they've been given approval by the Food Standards Agency, so they're okay to be putting drinks. What we don't know is whether you can make any valid health claims about them. So we don't know if actually they really do, um, whether they really are less harmful, although there's good reasons to think they might be. One of the things I tried to look at in preparing for for this interview was what happens if you drink a lot of this? Do you still get really drunk? Does it have any health impacts? And I struggled to find an answer to that question. The closest I got was was a quote, I think it was from David Nutt, saying, if people drink this as we recommend, they shouldn't have any problems, which kind of begs the question, well, what if they don't drink it as, as you recommend? Now, that's not to say in any way this product is harmful. I'm just saying that there are, there are unanswered questions out there. And, and until we have more data, it, it's really difficult to say. Whether it's the future, it could be. But one of the things to think about is, well, we've also seen a big growth in no and low alcohol drinks in recent years. 
and the, the alcohol industry is investing really heavily in these. And they're essentially doing the same kind of thing. Um, they don't give you the buzz uh, of drinking, but they do give you the flavor and the feel of an alcoholic drink and, and, and the general sense that you are still drinking. Does Alcorel substitute for those? Does it bring something they don't? Could it be combined with those types of drinks? I think there's lots of unanswered questions there about where alcohol is going. But I think one of the things that is clear is, is the market is becoming much more diverse. And the idea that if you're a middle-aged man and you go to a pub, you have a pint of beer, I think that's, that's really disappearing and there are, much more, there are going to be more options available in future. Alcohol has a role in society as a social lubricant, essentially. You mentioned earlier that uh, some women find it's easier to go out and socialise if they've already had a drink or two. That's something a lot of us, I think, will recognise. Might we lose something if we all stop drinking? Obviously, it would be better for our health. But if we all stop drinking at all, is there a downside, if you like, for society in terms of sociability, in terms of just the human ability to bond and make connections? I think this is a really tricky question. And, and yeah, you're right. I'm duty-bound as a public health researcher <laughs> to say there would definitely be benefits. Yeah. Um, but we've built a society, as you say, where alcohol has quite a big role. And we definitely notice if it wasn't there. We, it plays a role in celebrations. We mark occasions with it. It plays a role in just simple everyday acts of friendship, like buying a friend a drink or buying them a bottle of wine to thank them for something. And there's also bigger questions. I mean, pubs are part of our architectural heritage. Imagine walking around a city and there not being pubs on every corner. It's, it causes public health problems, but it's definitely part of the, the ambience of a British, of a British city. Uh, and they're also embedded in popular culture, whether it's, I, mean, I grew up in the Britpop era and one of the first albums I bought had cigarettes and alcohol as a song on it. But things are already shifting. And, and despite some people grumbling about young people drinking less, it's not clear that their, their experience of life or, or that society is getting worse as a result. It's, it's just different. Young, young people are socializing in different ways, whether that's kind of going to coffee shops or, or doing more activities that just don't involve alcohol, but finding perfect pleasure in it. One of the most memorable quotes I read in a, in a piece of research on this was that previously, um, young people often used to say, well, the only way you really know yourself and know your friends is when you've got drunk together and had deep, meaningful, drunk conversations. In the more recent research, what young people say is the only way you're going to ever know your friends and know yourself is if you're having those conversations when you're not drunk. I don't think that alcohol is intrinsic to, to the way we, we build a good society. It's just part of a society we've built, and we can build a different society where it isn't as important. Do you drink? I don't drink, no. Although I, I did want to add when I saw, when I saw you were going to ask this question, <laughs> but I'm part of a team of um, 30 researchers and PhD students, and the vast majority of them do drink. So it, it's more of a coincidence than a, than a meaningful finding that I don't drink. <laughs> what advice would you give to people who do drink? and suspect that it might be a problem, that they might be drinking too much? Yeah, so I mean, the first thing to say here is we have low-risk guidelines that the Chief Medical Officer has published based on an extensive review of the evidence. And those say you can keep your risks from alcohol low by drinking no more than 14 units a week. And that's about a bottle and a half of wine or six or seven pints of beer. It's also worth saying that that's just a, a threshold 
there's there's no magical cutoff level. If you're drinking and you want to reduce your risk, every bit less that you drink will help. If you're worried about your drinking, there's kind of two ways you can go. One is there are lots of self-help solutions out there, whether that's apps such as a Drink Less app where you can record your drinks and set yourself targets and and basically get some uh, well-designed interventions to help you drink less. There's also things like temporary abstinence campaigns, such as Dry January, and it doesn't need to be January for you to quit drinking for a period, although there's lots of support available in January. But if you're more worried about your drinking, if you think you need some help, or if you're worried about someone else's drinking, the best things to do are to, to seek help. You can talk to your GP. There's lots of support online, and the, the NHS's alcohol support pages are a good place to start. But the, be- the most important thing is you seek help and recognize that it's not easy drinking less. There will be stumbling blocks along the way. It might be a stop-start process, but if you can get your alcohol consumption down, it will really benefit your health. John, thanks so much for joining us. That's no problem. If you're spending less money on booze, then why not spend it on us instead? For the price of half a pint each month, you can help us keep talking to fascinating people. And the lamb on Holloway Road only sees us occasionally, honestly. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Ros Taylor, and thanks for listening. The Bunker Tales presented by Ros Taylor. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Jack Gerberson, Kaji Tomashevich, and the other guy. Marketing manager was Gene Rich. Music by Kenny Dickinson. And the art direction by James Parrott. The bunker is part of You know what? I don't even like podcasts anyway.